Welcome to Agatha Christie, she watched. Our spoiler-heavy look at the movie and TV adaptations of the mystery genre's greatest writer. I'm Bill Paschal of Paschal Press, publisher of the annotated novels of Agatha Christie, and today we're talking about sleazy directors, pompous playwrights, alcoholic detectives, and a murderous Agatha Christie. It's See How They Run, a meta-parody based on the production of The Mousetrap, starring Sam Rockwell and Shearsa Ronan. But first, let me introduce my partner in marriage, as well as crime of the fictional kind, Teresa Peschel. Hello, Teresa. How you doing? Hello. I'm feeling much better. And we have a special guest today. We have Madeline. Beautiful Madeline is snoozing in a corner, so it is very unlikely that you will hear any of her sweet little meows. Yep. She doesn't really meow very much. It's a little bit cracked. She has a cracked voice. Meow. Something like that. But uh, yes, we actually have a cat in attendance supervising the production, so I'm sure this will be a great podcast, because how could it be otherwise when supervised by a cat? That's right. Now, this was a extra movie we tacked on, so it's actually the 201st movie we watched for the Agatha Christie. She watched Prague. Um, Is it really 201? 201, yes. Big, um, maybe off one or two, depending on how we count this. Oh but, my God. <laughs> but we were going to finish up with uh, Why Didn't They Ask Evans, which came out this past year as well. And then we discovered that See How They Run has a cameo, sort of, by Agatha and Max Mallowin. And yes, and it takes place around the 100th um, uh, uh, the 100th performance of The Mousetrap. And again, you know, how could we miss this wonderful tie-in giving you a view into a parallel universe in Agatha Christie's life, the one in which she not only attempts to poison a housebreaker, but she takes a snow shovel to him and then tries to decapitate him with the snow shovel. And I was very impressed that A, she was doing this, and B, that she had a snow shovel with a heavy enough blade that it wouldn't crumble like aluminum foil. Well, it sounded like she was angry enough to be able to work it for a while. And <laughs> it was, uh, as a fictional character, it also kind of shows the future of Agatha Christie, where we're going to see more of these adaptations, and we're probably going to see more adaptations that will take their own shape. And she's becoming a fictional character in her own right. Oh, yes. There's a number of novels out there. It's not just Andrew, Andrew Wilson, I think. Yes. It's not just Andrew Wilson's series. One of the Agatha award-winning uh, historical novels, if I remember correctly, from Malice Domestic of 2022, was a novel that took place at Greenway. There was one at Greenway. And yep. and there was another and one in which... Murder at Mallowan Hall. Yeah, Murder at Mallowan Hall. So she's becoming a character. She either is the person solving the mysteries in at least two or three different novels that I know of by different authors, or she is a secondary character and her housekeeper is solving the mysteries. That was Felidia Bright and uh, whatever whatever author was writing that, and I can't remember. But yeah, she's becoming a character. And when you think about how full and vibrant her life was, people forget when they see all of the novels that she writes, people forget that she was, she is the most successful female playwright ever, and she is more successful than a lot of well-known male playwrights in terms of sheer volume of performances and number of plays and being performed all over the world. You just forget how much she did. She dominates the 20th century literary and theatrical landscape, but nobody can see her because she's so big. You don't see her at all. 
who pays attention to the fact that Agatha Christie is the most popular female playwright by miles, and she is way more popular than a lot of better-known men. Yeah. Who knows? Who pays attention to that? Now, we'll get to see how they run, starring Sam Rockwell and Shirsa, Shirsa Ronan. Is that how you say that? I yes. always wondered, you know, looking at that. S-A-O-I-R-S-E, and yes, it's Irish, and it is pronounced Shirsa. So they can't spell in Ireland. Well, they spell it their own way. This is Gaelic. Let's not get let's not get in trouble. We've already gotten in trouble with the Chinese and the Russians. Let's not get the Irish on our on against us either. Got it. Got yeah. it. But it's okay, a, so Shearsa. Shearsa. Sure. And she plays Constable Stalker to Sam Rockwell's Inspector Stoppard. And there might be a indication there by the name Stoppard. And yes, he is named for Tom Stoppard, the playwright. Who did not? Who's not as successful as Agatha Christie, a, <laughs> at least as far as financial finances are concerned. But the, all this takes place in. It is a meta movie. I call it meta because it seems very self-aware of itself as a movie. It's self-aware as characters. It's very theatrical. There are all kinds of cinematic tricks going on here, including uh, flashbacks. There's a narration at the beginning by a dead man. Oh, and split screens and uh, writing on the screen that tell you, oh, three weeks ago or three weeks later. There's meta jokes about, well, for example, it starts with the narration by Adrian Brody, who plays Leo Kopernick. And Kopernick is a... You were nicked by the coppers. Nicked by the coppers. <laughs> and all it is, it's a, it's, a, it's a voiceover and he's deploring, he's a, a film director and he's deploring how plays, you know, mystery plays, they always start the same way. They get all the characters, you get the introduction, you get the introduction of the detective, yada, 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 and then they bring them all on stage. It was something also about how... Uh, and, and during the scene, he shows you a storyboard of how he thinks the mousetrap should be filmed, the opening. The, no, the and, end of it. Or the end of it. And we get exactly that ending in the movie itself. Yep. And I'll tell you, folks, if you can't roll with the, the theatrical staginess of this, you will hate this movie. <laughs> you will absolutely hate this movie. It is so arch. It is so self-aware. Nobody ever quite breaks the fourth wall other than Leo Kopernick, because, of course, he's talking to you from beyond the grave, so he can do whatever he darn well pleases. But if you can't go with it, and oh, what I it reminds me of, what it reminds me of is the David Suchet, and I'm going to say it wrong, it's either tragedy in three acts or three-act tragedy, because it we yeah. saw two versions of it under two different titles, but the David Suchet one was done very theatrical and stagey, and this is even more so. And I want to say at the very end, actually, Sam Rockwell does break the fourth wall because they're sitting in the audience at the mousetrap. That's right, and he, he turns does. to them and gives tries to deliver the the final soliloquy by the detective. And it should be noted also, even though they call it the mousetrap, we're not seeing the mousetrap. It is altered ever so slightly. They don't reveal what happens in the mousetrap. Yeah, so they, you know, they didn't get the rights from the Christie estate. There was an interview with the screenwriters and they said, well, we sent them a copy and, and basically they said they didn't sue us. So I guess we, got, <laughs> we can do this. We let them know what we were doing. But also they were very careful, even though we see scenes supposedly from the play, it's not the actual play. It's not itself. the actual play. So they, they played fair with that. I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. And I would like to see it a second time because it is just loaded with theatrical in-jokes, Agatha Christie references, mysteries in general references and discussions. If you are a writer or you are at all connected with 
theater, the TV industry, the motion picture industry, you will find so much to recognize and laugh at. Or if you love golden age mysteries, you know, you'll look at this and think, oh my God, I've seen this. Oh my God, this is so fun. But if you don't like any of those things, you're going to hate this. Yeah. Because that Leo is kind of at the heart because he ends up getting killed within like the first 10 or 15 minutes. But he keeps coming back during in flashbacks and voiceovers. And he has a he has the kind of death that in some ways is both wildly unrealistic and also very realistic, which is that the mysterious intruder doesn't manage to successfully strangle him and so then whaps him upside the head with a ski, which also doesn't quite manage to kill him, and then finally succeeds by bashing his skull in with a vintage Singer sewing machine. It must not have been properly bolted down, because you wouldn't have been able to lift up the entire cabinet holding the Singer sewing machine. So he lifted up the Singer. It might have been a featherweight, I'm not sure. But a very classic Singer from the 40s. You know, right. with the beautiful turn wheel and the hand and the foot treadle, and uh, it works by pu- pumping the foot treadle because it's not electric. Beautiful sewing machine. Terrible and, to use it that way. Right. And since we're doing a terrible job of introducing this, <laughs> unlike Leo, <laughs> we'll say that it does take place during a party afterwards. And we actually get a little hint of, of Agatha's participation because Petula Spencer, the producer, gets a cable during the performance. And it's a cable, it's a cable from Agatha saying, Sorry, I can't, I'm not going to show up, but I will send cake. Yes, and this is for the 100th performance. And in fact, there is a documentary out there about the, what was it, the 100th performance of The Mousetrap? We saw the documentary, and what I particularly remember was the really nice cake with rolled fondant and all of these beautifully made fondant mice. Well, this she is just said. the 100th performance. It's not like the 10th anniversary of it. I know, or she celebrated something like those. 25th because it was just before she died i think no not the way she was dressed maybe it was the thousandth performance i don't know because if you're playing six times a week plus two matinees on sunday Mm. uh you know you can add up pretty quickly okay so we're introduced at the party to all the people involved and i mentioned petula spencer and this is i don't think this was meant as an in joke but petula spencer is played by ruth wilson who actually was the bus driver in the Miss Marple episode, Nemesis, the second one. Oh, well, the British film industry is a small one, so they're going to be, uh, they're going to reuse people. Right. I mean, Shirley Henderson plays Agatha Christie, and we've seen her in at least two other Agatha Christie adaptations I can think of off the top of my head. The Miss Marple Bizarre, Why Didn't They Ask Evans? And she was also the landlady in the Sarah Phelps Oh, right. Uh, ABC, ABC Murders. Murders. Yeah. And those are just the two that I can think of off the top of my head. Yeah. Plus they have a character, Richard, Richard Attenborough, the the uh, the uh, actor. And, and his he wife, really did star in The Mouse Trap when it first opened, with along his with wife, his Sheila wife. Sims, and Richard was also in the 1989 and then there were none. One, he was the judge. Filmed in, it was one filmed in the desert. No, I mean, he I mean, wasn't not the one. In, that's the safari the, one. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's the safari one. No, this he was in the, the 1974 version. With Oliver and, Reed. And I had serious problems with that version because he was supposed to be playing a man with a limp, which is, by the way, is a running joke throughout here. Yes, he is playing a cripple with a cane, but he sure didn't run around like a cripple with a cane, having no using a cane myself. I know that you are not going to be run, racing about at top speed. Yes. So, but at the time he starred in the mousetrap with his wife and he was already a known actor at the time. So having a famous actor performing in a play was a big thing back then, apparently. 
And he also got, you mentioned he uh, got a pretty good deal out of it too. Oh yes. According to his, the Wikipedia entry on the mousetrap, maybe that's where it was, that uh, he got part of the profit sharing. He, he signed in for that. I'm not sure exactly how he did it. And he said it was the best business decision he ever made. And I bet it was. <laughs> so there's that. And then there is the screenwriter, playwriter, Mervyn Cocker Norris. Who is not officially associated with anything connected with Agatha Christie world. Oh, 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 that reminds me. Part of the plot is, of course, the idea that they are going to film The Mousetrap. Right. And that apparently did actually happen in yeah. the 50s. Somebody wanted to film The Mousetrap, but Agatha said it had to be off-Broadway for it, off it, the stage. Off the West End. Off the West End for at least six months. Well, that has never That's happened, That's why we've never folks. seen a film version of The Mousetrap. But Mervyn was going to do the film script for it, and he's at clashing with Leo because his way and Leo's desires are clashing, and they already had one screaming argument over the script, which will come up. They have real clashes because Leo understands what movies are supposed to do and how the single most important function of a movie is to make money. It is to put butts in seats and a stagey play may not be the way to put butts in seats. And <laughs> and so they're arguing about it. And of course, Mervyn has this, he's a wonderful parody of literary writers who are ever so much above it all, darling. And they certainly aren't going to deal with dreary, mundane realities. In fact, he actually tells the usher, Dennis Corrigan, that uh, he's going to elevate the plot beyond, you know, the dreary child abuse that's case that that actually inspired the mousetrap because why would anybody want who cares and who that cares? plays that that comes up later in the movie as well that comes back to bite comes back to bite him actually pretty hard oh yes and he deserved it All right and so mervin and he's so he's he, callous he, he's 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 charming and fay and witty and everything that you want to be in a professional party guest mm -hmm. but he is absolutely callous to anybody's needs but his own and he's accompanied by his nephew actually lover the italian Geo, I think is yes, is and you and you, you see in the background a framed poster of Geo in a film. I guess it's either a yeah. film or a play. I'm not sure which one. Called Callow Youth, Youth right? And right. Uh, it was written by <laughs> Mervin. Presumably, that's how they met. Yes, presumably that's how they met. And uh, well, they know what they. We all know what they're doing. Everybody knows what they're doing. But it's theater, so it's okay. Okay, and then there's John Wolf, who is a producer, and he's the one who's going to sign the contract for the film rights to the mouse trap and he is of course carrying on a torrid affair with his personal assistant and he is married to a loony spiritualist actress wife and frankly the assistant is going to be a much easier person to live with than the loony spiritualist high needs actress no question on that but most of the movie is actually going to be between inspector stoppard and constable stalker they're going to be investigating the case, and of course they're going to be questioning everybody, but there's also the relationship between them because she's young, very inexperienced, not really wanting to be there, but she's very keen. She's very, very keen, and she has reason to need this job because she is a war widow and she has two children, two young children, and I'll tell you that again, Hollywood strikes again where they choose an actress who is probably at least five years too young for this particular role to be a married woman with 
children who looked to be eight and ten, which meant that she got married at like sixteen and knocked up right away. If you if you do the math on your fingers, which I do, and so there's Sam Rockwell who must be thirty years older than she is. He's been in movies for decades. Uh, I have no idea how much older he is, but at least 20 years older than she is. But, you know, hey, that's Hollywood, because of course you're going to use a woman who is far too young to have a 10-year-old to stand in for all all of the women who got jobs on the police force or everywhere else. Yeah, but at the same time, she looks very young, and she was. I think you said she was 25 when she did this? She, if I'm doing the math correct, she was 26 to 27, because she's 28 now. Right. So the film came out in 2022, but they did started production in 2021, and then you had the worldwide pandemic. So if you subtract two years, she was 26 when she started on this. Okay, and Inspector Stoppard, of course, he looks like the aged enough aged enough to be an experienced investigator. Although at sometimes there was, I, he didn't really do a very good job of it. Yeah, he was a drunk, no question. And yeah, exactly. Oh, he did right. not he was, seem yeah. like he was a very good investigator. And then some of the scenes didn't go anywhere. Like. Uh, his wife walked out on them when she was eight months pregnant because that's when she told him, by the way, the baby I'm carrying, it's not, not yours. yours. So you see these this little vignette where Constable Stalker is putting her two young children to bed, her two, you know, her eight-year-old and her ten-year-old to bed, who do not get a speaking part. And then you see him apparently having a woodworking shop in his bed sit <laughs> where he is making Uh, children's jigsaw puzzles for a child he does not have but it was so unclear this movie takes an hour and 38 minutes to run and there were times where you like that particular scene i was thinking you know another minute of film would have said would have shown how heartbroken he was yeah, or maybe if he had given the the pieces to um, Constable Stalker for her kids. Yeah, that would have that, worked that would have too. Least, but it never came back. It never popped it, up again. It, so. it never came back. It was, it and was. and there was the sequence where um, Stalker ends up in his bed sit, and she's because he's he goes over to Mervyn's flat after Mervyn's murder. This is towards the end, and he is looking for evidence to confirm his suspicions, and Stalker is trying to figure out who done it too, and they're working separately, almost at cross-purposes, and she discovers the usher's coat in the bedsit. Well, where oh. did that come from? You are never given an explanation yeah. for where that came from. Okay. That purple is really distinctive. That is, and you caught that, and I just missed it entirely so when we watch it again we're just gonna have you'll just have to stop the film stop the film and point it out to me (laughs) along with along with you know we'll have to have our drinky winkies so every time we see an agatha christie reference like when she says ram's bottom as she's standing at the sink or they they mention a name or the uh, uh somebody does something I'm sure this film is simply riddled with Agatha Christie Easter eggs. It's just a matter of noticing them. Yeah, because there's that one particular point that's part of the scene where they're sitting in a car, they're waiting for a suspect to arrive, and he decides he needs a drink. But he tells her, I'm going to go to the dentist. I need to get a filling, do something. And then he goes in, and she sees the suspect drive up and she races down the street and she's looking for dentist offices and she's looking at the doorbells. There's apparently one office that has four dentists and you're one of them down is the Norman Gale dentist from 
uh, Death in the Clouds, and another one is Henry Morley, the dentist in One, Two, Buckle My Shoe. And I am sure there are other things in there, but they might be completely visual jokes. If you remember seeing the Doctor Who episode of Agatha Christie and the wasp, these, and the, the wasp and the unicorn with the space wasp, one of the jokes in there was there were yellow irises on the table, a table arrangement of yellow irises. And if you don't notice the flower or you don't know those are yellow irises, you won't know that that is a visual joke referring to the Poirot short story Yellow Iris. So the movie goes on and they continue their investigation. And there's also a scene in which, as a matter of fact, sometime about in the middle of the movie, they're going to a production of The Mousetrap. And again, they didn't really set this up very well because we don't know necessarily why they did. Yeah, and we don't know why they got up. We don't know why he got up. They got tickets. They got free tickets because Constable Stalker has not yet become jaded and world weary. And so she was completely blown away from talking to And, and she fangirled all over him, and he loved it. He just ate it up, which actors do, of course. You know, we're watching them. They're sitting there in the audience, spread apart, because they want to see what happens. And I don't... They got separate tickets, that sep- so they're in separate parts. She's up in the balcony, and he's down below. And and he, and uh, Stoppard got up and moved out of his seat, and I don't know why. And then she got up to pursue him, and that's about the time that Mervyn gets murdered. Because Mervyn gets up... And, and leaves. And I think he was following, trying to follow Mervyn. Yeah, I, I guess. So you had th- like four people, because I think there was somebody else who got up as well. And this is where you actually get, we see not just a split screen, but four screens of them running around the theater. And, and again, a minute or two of extra film with some dialogue would have made it so much clearer. And then this leads to Stalker making the leaping to conclusion, which she has been doing all along. She has jumped to conclusions all along that, oh, Inspector Stoppard is actually the murderer, a la a lot of Christie novels like Hercule Poirot's Christmas, where it turns out to be the policeman who done it. Right, because Mervyn gets trapped by the killer and strangled in the hallway in the theater and at the exact same time that there's a woman character getting strangled on stage. So again, this is part of kind of the arch references, the meta references, because they show in a split screen both of them getting strangled at the same time, right down to their feet kicking. Oh, yeah. And then the lights come up. And Stalker is trying to find, trying to find Stoppard and he find and she sees him bent over Mervyn's body. And she leaps to the conclusion that because he has an ex-wife who had a child by another man, that it must be Leo Kopernick who had a, a, at least one girlfriend with a child that, uh, you know, and the, and the women were both tall and plain Plain with, and with heavy duty, uh, glasses. And so obviously it must be the same person. And so the Stoppard killed all of these people because of jealous anger. And of course, as it turns out, Constable Stalker is wrong because once again, she gets all her exercise jumping to conclusions. Yes, but not before she whacks him on the back of the head out in the street with a shuffle. Not just any shovel, a snow shovel, shovel. which appears again later on a different snow shovel, which appears later on at the climax. Yeah, but then it falls into a dream sequence in which he's wandering in the woods. What are you doing in this neck of the woods? What are you doing in this neck of the woods? And 
he is to- obviously in the woods. So obviously he made it to this neck of the woods, to this very nice bar being run by Leo Copper, Nick from Beyond the Grave. And if you've seen The Shining, in which uh, Jack Nicholson is in the bar as well, I got similar vibes to it. It's not shot exactly the same way, but it was again, it was weird enough that it, it is that. And I've never seen The Shining. Yeah, well, there is a scene in which he's in the Overlook bar back in the 1920s, and he's talking to the bartender and, you know, just having this conversation. It's part of his madness. I guess so, we're going to have to watch that movie, but not part of uh, Murder at the Movies, is it? It's not a no, mystery, is it? No, it's no, not. There, a, no, there's nothing. Not really I've read the novel. There's nothing mysterious about it. Right. But there's a point in which, and I was thinking about this because it also kind of refers back to Stoppard. Uh, Leo is talking to him and he says, you know, now that I'm dead, I want to know, do anybody miss me? And Stoppard says, no, not, not particularly. And he says, oh, he shows regret for it. And it was only later I was thinking, is that Leo asking this or is it Stoppard asking himself through mm-hmm. Leo? Because he screwed up his life big time. Yeah, he has screwed up his life because, you know, obviously something happened with his wife where she went off with another man. She was pregnant with another man's child. But also, and here's something again that we don't even think about today. After World War II, same thing with after the Great War, any man who wanted to be married could be because so many men were killed in the war and you had an imbalance in the sexes. So basically any man who wanted to get married could have. And as a policeman, which was not just a constable, but an inspector of respectable position, decently paid, he could have found somebody who would have loved him every day. But he didn't. Of course, the alcoholism, I'm sure, didn't help. And you don't know why if his unpleasantness. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you know, th- this could very well be Stoppard asking Leo in, in his dream. You know, it sounds like Leo is asking this question, but it's really Stoppard asking this question. Who will miss me? Yeah. Who will care? And again, it's this kind of movie where you really want to pay attention. This is not one where you just say, oh, I'm just going to turn off my brain, which some movies are perfect for that. Avatar, perfect movie for that because it's not engaging at all. It's pretty pictures. You have to really pay attention to this film. I really liked it and I do want to see it again. But I can also see that, you know, another two or three minutes of film spread out over making it instead of an hour and 38 minutes, making it an hour and 42 minutes, four minutes would have really made certain things clearer. Like how did the usher's jacket get into the bed set, into Stoppard's bed set? What was Stoppard doing trying to make children's wooden jigsaw puzzles with a bandsaw in his bed sit. That's what it looked like, or else he rented a separate little workshop. And you never get any kind of a payoff with that, just like you never get any kind of a payoff with Stalker putting her children to bed. Mm. Now, I... In a typical Hollywood movie, of course, they would have been uh, hostages. They would have been taken hostage (laughs) and threatened. And that's what Leo Kopernik would have done. He would have made them hostages because that ups the uh, ante. But you don't get anything. You know, like she aced her uh, exams and her children were there cheering when she walks across the stage to get her certificate to say, you are now a full-fledged sergeant. Yeah. You don't get any payoff for some of the things that they set up. Yeah. Now, at the very end, we finally get Agatha and Max, and it's at their home, Winter, and I'm I'm blanking on the house. I have absolutely no idea, Uh, but you thought that it was in the wrong county, and it turns out it was in the correct county because they renamed the counties. uh, Yeah, it was in Berkshire, Yeah, and it's not in Berkshire anymore. It's in Oxford, 
Oxfordshire. But it was a little odd to see that uh, Max Malowan is being played by a black man. But the uh, again, this is a parallel universe. This is a parallel universe. So, hey, it's perfectly possible because I can't imagine the real Agatha Christie actually poisoning a guest and being that careless that she didn't put the spoon. And this is another Agatha Christie in-joke. When you see that spinning... Okay, we may want to back up first because, first of all, the cast members are being drawn to the house. To the house. They were falsely, they thought they were going to have dinner with Agatha Christie. Because they've received received beautiful engraved invitations. Right, invitations, and that is not the case, and the butler is very puzzled over it, and, of course, Max is puzzled over it, and... You know, yes, the fact that he's a black man is very, it throws you off at first. But at the same time, you know, you do have black characters throughout. There's the playwright and then there's the uh, wolf's assistant. So in you can also say, well, why not make him black? And the fact that this is a comedy is just another way of kind of of poking the audience. And you have to think of this as being, this is in a parallel universe, yeah. not our own. It's two or three pages removed. After the first, oh my God, then you're you're fine. You're fine because oh, yeah. the actor, um, I'm going to mispronounce his name, Lucian M.S. Mismati, you know, he did a great job. You know, he was charming. He was witty. He clearly he played, adored he his Agatha. Max. He played Max. He played Max. He played Max really well. He was Max Malowan. Right. And, and, and probably more like Max Malowan. Malowan, you remember when we met Max in, was it Agatha Christie and the Curse of Ishtar? Oh, God. Oh. This was his, he was a yeah. better Max. This was a better Max than that one. That's for sure. <laughs> anyway, the villain breaks in and we find out it's Dennis Corgan, the usher, and he's upset because Agatha based the play on him and his brother. Who, and were, who his brother was murdered by their foster parents in a terrible case of child abuse. And this is actually true. The mousetrap is actually, there was a, a notorious case about some children who were taken in by a Shropshire farmer and his wife. And I always, when somebody says Shropshire farmer, I always think of the Daffy Duck Sherlock Holmes cartoon in which they're looking for the Shropshire slasher. And the... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not the right time to bring this and, up. And and it, it, it caused the British foster care system to be shaken up completely because they did such a bad job seeing after the well-being of these two children, or these three children. And I can actually understand why Dennis Corrigan would be so upset because he lived through this. He watched his brother be murdered. He lived through this and nobody cared and now their pain and their grief and their agony is being converted into amusement for six nights a week plus a matinee on Sunday. Right. And as the usher, he's standing there watching it every night. No wonder it ends up going around the bend. Oh, absolutely. And he wants to stop the play and he wants to stop the movie as well. And that's why he killed these people. This circles back to where one of the many scenes in which Constable Stalker leaps to conclusions. But the inspector, Inspector Stoppard says, gives her a very nice cogent reason for why people do murder. They have a reason. And it is almost always heightened emotions, rage. They're pushed over to the edge. I can't repeat it exactly, but it's a wonderful line. And that's exactly what proves to be true. So Agatha is not among the people being taken hostage. It's the entire cast plus Max. Agatha was actually at the sink washing dishes, which she is known to have done and talking through her latest mystery, which is actually based on, do you remember which one? It's a pocket full of rye because of Mrs. Ramsbottom. That's right. She says, Mrs. Ramsbottom might've done it. And she's looking at her notebook, which looks like a child's notebook. So that part they got down 
correctly as well. What they didn't get down correctly is that once she realizes that people are in trouble, she's rooting about for for rat poison and making a round of tea, all these teacups on there, and she brings it in. And she does what Agatha would not have done. She did not carefully note which is the, which is the special teacup by like putting a, an extra couple of sugar cubes on the edge of the cup, anything. So you know which one it is. And there's in Murder by the Book, which was the one hour special where Agatha has a dream sequence with Hercule Poirot and you see them spinning the teacups. And it's obviously a reference to Curtin, which is where that idea showed up, where Hastings spins the tea, the, the circular uh, library uh, it's, it's like a freestanding bookcase that's circular and it spins and the wrong person drinks the poisoned tea. Well, that's exactly what happens. Fellows, it, it, the poisoned tea is supposed to go to the hostage taker, to Dennis the usher. And of course, the butler gets the poisoned tea and dies. And, nope. and she poisoned him by accident. And I cannot believe for one <laughs> second that Agatha Christie would have made a mistake like that because she would have done something so like all the handles were in one direction and that handle was different yeah and and, and this was this was a that. mistake waiting to happen you could see it coming and you you could see that she sets it down on this circular tea tray and somebody bumps it and causes it to spin and you can see actually look at it and see that she's recalculating readjusting the tray and that the the poison tea is actually in the wrong place and of course the wrong person gets poisoned and again you know in a way this is a callback to three-act tragedy Mm-hmm. Because yeah. in three-act tragedy, Sir Charles poisoned one of the cocktails for the, for the initial poisoning, and he didn't care who got it, as long as he didn't get it, and as long as Egg, Egg didn't get it. It didn't matter. Even Poirot could have gotten even it because he was there. Yes, even Poirot could have gotten it, as he points out in the novel and in the uh, both films. Yeah, and again, there was another uh, little Easter egg there, because the butler is named Fellows. After Julian Fellows, who wrote *Crooked House*, who wrote *Crooked House*, as well as *Downton Abbey* and some of the other, and you know other great works of literature. And but then no, the movie... Agatha never uses a snow shovel. <laughs> <laughs> she probably did know how to use a snow shovel, but I am sure that she never whacked any uh, home intruder across the back of the head with a snow shovel and then tried to decapitate them. <laughs> yep, but it plays out exactly as Leo storyboarded in the middle of the movie it's it's the detective breaking in he's got a gun from his service in the war dennis faces off with him with a shot with a with a rifle with a rifle maybe even a rook rifle i know it was too big to be a rook rifle that looked more like a a hunting rifle a 22 or something like that but that was not a rook rifle it was too big okay Uh, (laughs) don't you make those hand gestures to me He gets shot twice and the gun jams. And And Constable Stalker, who has been told to stay behind, she follows and she flings herself over there, in, but not quite in the nick of time, <laughs> to rescue the inspector. And, yeah. and it's just like the storyboard. Yeah. And of course, this is how you should have the climax of a movie. Yes, you don't have a boring denouement and the arrest. You have to have gunplay. <laughs> And an explosion. And an explosion. And an explosion where, where uh, uh, you know, Sheila Sim, actress, makes a Molotov cocktail to divert attention. <laughs> <laughs> and you can tell it's all stage play because, you know, there's a bookcase that's going up in flames and it keeps going up in flames and yet there's no smoke. You know, the house is not burning down. Nobody's <laughs> coughing. 
it's that artificiality that you see all the way through. And if you can accept that, you can have a great time. Oh, yeah. And there are so many callbacks within the movie. You know, it isn't just the big climax, which is exactly what Leo Kopernik storyboarded. It's that Dennis arranges Leo's body on the couch, on the stage, in the mousetrap. And then when uh, the Butler Fellows dies, he's on an identical couch in what looks like an identical living room in Agatha Christie's living room. And it's all staged and set up to look the same to say, oh, remember this. Think about that. Let us remind you of this thing that happened. It was really fun and it looks gorgeous oh, it is fabulous looking it's so beautiful clothes costuming you know beautiful sets. rich walls and richly decorated rooms and uh that cake that wonderful wonderful <laughs> cake that uh, leo ends up uh when Smashing. he hits on uh seal he hits on sheila and uh, dickie attenborough takes umbrage at that and then punches him and throws him right into the cake he also apparently ends up on the table full of prawns at a somewhat a little bit later on in the evening during the fight Mm -hmm. i I just there was just so much to see just wonderful wonderful stuff but if you don't like a super stagey super theatrical obviously artificial movie you won't like it yeah but i did i thought it was fun yeah and it was a great way to end this next stage in our evolution because we're going to go back and watch some earlier episodes that we've already seen and we'll do some podcasts about them as well so we'll keep on doing this for another dozen episodes or so and then we'll have the book done and hopefully ready for malice domestic in april, april? yes it is april Late it april. is i'm looking at the calendar and we're going to be at the uh what's the name of the hotel again dear uh, it's in Be- north bethesda north marriott bethesda. it's yes. marriott in north bethesda but maryland we'll be at the hotel on the 27th of april that is a thursday <sighs> and we will have books in hand we will have agatha christine we're gonna she work wrote. hard at it yeah we're gonna work really hard <laughs> <laughs> it's not just a matter of, of watching these it's writing the reviews and editing them and laying out the book and we're mostly done with it as well but we still got a lot of work to do. And and it has been so fun. And, you know, this was a really nice uh, ending. I think in some ways better than ending with Why, Why Didn't, didn't they, they Ask Evans? Evans? Because suddenly we're plunged back into a parallel world where Agatha Christie becomes a character in her own right where she will pick up a snow shovel and uh, bash someone in the head with it. <laughs> Why wouldn't she? Why wouldn't she? This is a home invader in her home, interfering with her own personal life. Yep. And she even has a conversation with Dennis Corrigan where she justifies why she chooses to write the way she does. Yeah, because he asks her, I'd like for you to stop this. And she says, oh, no, I can't do that. And it's a really great conversation. There's a lot of great stuff in this movie. There really is. And um, if you're a Christie fan, you may really enjoy this. Yeah. So, this ends another episode of Agatha Christie's You Watch. And thanks so much for joining us. I'm Bill Peschel. And I'm Teresa. And remember to always look on Peschel Press's front page on our website, and you'll see what uh, events we have coming up. If you want to come out and meet us, we are happy to talk about Agatha Christie films. And in the meantime, we'll see you at the movies. Bye-bye. Agatha Christie, She Watched is Teresa Peschel and Bill Peschel, produced by Bill Peschel. New episodes come out every week wherever you stream your content. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can help support us by going to anchor.fm backslash mystery and leaving a five-star rating and review, and by helping to spread the word. To advertise on Mystery She Watched, email peschel at 
peschelpress.com. All questions and comments can be emailed to peschel at peschelpress.com. And thank you for listening.